by the way, happy Father's Day uh, to the fathers in the room. Um, we, we try to make this a weekend thing in our family because seven years ago, to get a little bit of uh, knowledge about me, seven years ago, uh, we had our first uh, child and on May 1st. I don't know what day Mother's Day is, but soon thereafter, and I'm walking out the house uh, to go to church that day. I hadn't said anything to my wife because I wasn't in, you know, familiar with these sorts of holidays yet. And on my way out, I said, hey, by the way, we can't forget to call my mom after church. Um, and so I uh, was in the doghouse for quite a while. Uh, speaking of that, um, the, the call to worship that we had actually re- really reminded me of, of a really dark time in our marriage. <laughs> Uh, possibly connected to that, no. Uh, a really dark time of our marriage that uh, we, we got through, uh, the, the Lord brought us through. Uh, and we, my, my wife's mom is a, a, an artist and she painted for us. Uh, we didn't tell her why, we didn't tell her the details. You're not supposed to tell your in-laws, you know, the details of your juicy fights. Um, but we told her that we, uh, you know, have made it through and asked if she could paint for us a big cypress tree. And so you walk into our house and we have Isaiah 55, this big cypress tree reminding us of the season in our life where um, there was briar and um, now there's, there's a cypress. Um, man, it's good to be with you guys. I've, uh, I'm, I'm great friends with Shane. I've known Jason for a long, long time. Um, I knew Ryan a little bit, but I've never been here. And um, so it's good to be here. Um, yeah, my name is Caleb. Uh, I have a wife, Meggie, who listened to this sermon three weeks ago, and so she didn't want to come here again. And uh, I've got a seven-year-old and a four-year-old and a two-year-old, uh, two boys and a, and a, and a girl. Um, and we, I went to University of Tulsa, graduated 11 years ago, and have stayed put. Uh, I've been to Tulsa that whole time. So uh, we, we really do love it. I was one of the lucky few RUF people who didn't have to move when they took the job and, uh, and also uh, went to my alumni school. So um, pretty cool. Anyway. Um, hey, let's pray, and we'll, we'll kind of dive into this passage. Um, God, we, we pause to just acknowledge your presence and that you are a God who speaks to us through your word. We uh, pray that you would do that. Lord, I ask for uh, you to um, meet those who have had disrupted weeks, and would you comfort them with your word by your spirit. And I pray that you would meet those who have had weeks just far too comfortable, that you would use your word to disrupt them. Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we're going to start with a bit of a, a history lesson, uh, something you would have never imagined starting with, uh, the history of a, of a country called Mozambique. Uh, Mozambique from, ni- from 1498 until 1975 was under the rule of Portugal. And in 1978, they uh, found their own independence. And they fought and they won. And they imagined, I would assume they imagined that finding freedom from Portugal would unite their people together, that they would become a stronger, more independent place. And what instead they found was from 1975 until 1983, um, their country was just bombarded with inner war, division, murder. We, what, what we saw is a bunch of people groups um, come, come to fruition from, from the Mozambique people and they fought one another, so much so that when the people made a country flag, and it's still the flag today, when they made a flag in 1983, they had the colors of Portugal on this flag, and then right in the middle of this flag was an AK-47 to represent the pain and the violence 
in the war and the death and the blood that marked and gave identity to their people. It was such a, a glaring part of their broken story. It represented their people to the world. And in some sense, this is what pain and suffering and sin and brokenness can do to all of us. It can take center stage in our life. It can become overwhelming. It can, it's all that we think about. It becomes the front and center part of our story, our, our flag, so to speak. If you just think about something like um, physical sickness, how much that just becomes a part of everything you think about. You know, sickness has invaded, for some of you, your own life, and for, for most of you, loved ones or friends. And it just takes center stage in, in your life. Or think about uh, our jobs and our work and just the futility that we, we, we struggle through some days, weeks, months, years, or the frustration or job loss or the anxiety or the worry about what, am I still going to have my job in, in six months? It takes center stage in, in our life. Or you think about the, the transition that you all are in. I don't know many details of the last two or three months that you found yourself in as a church family, but I know that it creates a lot of worry and uncertainty as you look ahead to the future and a lot of maybe grief and sadness as you look back to what once was. It's taken center stage in your story. And I could list off dozens, perhaps hundreds of, of examples of how our sin, our suffering, our pain, just like for the Mozambique people, the AK-47 represented them to the world. So our pain and our sadness and grief tends to represent us. And so what do we do with our sin? What do we do with our suffering? Where do we go? Where do we turn? What we're going to see in our text are, are two very desperate, hurting, fearful, suffering is the centerpiece of my flag sort of people. And what we see in this text is they, they turn, they run, they crawl to Jesus, who with his tenderness and his power puts for us our hope on display. That's what we're seeing here. We see these desperate people that in their tragedy, running, crawling to Jesus. If you would now, would you stand uh, with me for the reading of God's word from Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 56. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had only a daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. So she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately... Her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? And when all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. And Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. And how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, 
Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter's dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child, and all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. It's the reading of God's word. Let's give our attention to it. Y'all can be seated. So where do you turn when sin, suffering, pain has taken center stage in your life, when things aren't going your way? Um, Our three points for the morning as we work through this text are we're going to look at the desperation of the people and then we'll look at their faith and our hope. Those are the three points. The desperation, their faith, and our hope, all right? So the desperation. Uh, Quick personal, one other personal tidbit um, because you don't know me. Uh, I hate the summers in RUF. Uh, Like most ministers, I don't know of a single campus minister that takes this job for the summer because we're people person. We're people people. Uh, we want to be around others, we're extroverted, and so everyone leaves or they have jobs 8 to 5, and like we just can't see anybody, and we are just itching to get back to the fall. Um, but it's actually, I laugh, but it actually is not very fun. Um, it's quite lonely. Uh, the days go by slow, the weeks go by slow. We try to justify, justify ourselves in all sorts of ways. Um, but really, we, are, we do this job for, for the fall and for the spring, not for the summer. Um, and so here I was in, in quite a, a, low, a low place in, in uh, my, my life. Um, and my wife, the other night, um, we've been going through this discipleship course, which has been really great for us individually and together um, with, with a mentor. And we were talking in that session about uh, Zephaniah 317 and God's just the lighting love for his people. And the other night I said to my wife, I just said, you know, I just can't, I can't believe that. I don't feel that right now. I feel pretty cruddy. And she said, yeah, um, remember that sermon you preached at Trinity a couple weeks ago? And I was like, okay, what, you're going to use my sermon against me? Um, This is not good. You know that sermon you gave about Jairus and the bleeding woman? Uh, Yeah. She said, well, you sound pretty desperate. Sounds like a you know, you need to know that God delights in you. And how are you going to figure that one out, uh, Caleb? How, how's that going to happen? And there was, uh, she, didn't, she didn't say it like that. She said it much more kind. Um, there was a long pause. And I said, I guess I have to run to Jesus. Run to his words. They're the very words of life. And I don't know what she did next. She either patted me on the back or maybe herself. Um, But they were the words I needed to hear. And this is what we see in this text. People who are desperate, life's not going their way. It's the dark season of their life. And what do they need? They need to run to the words, to the person of Jesus Christ. They're all alone, and that's where they go. 
The story is at the very beginning of Luke's gospel. Um, in this chapter, what we're seeing, and what Luke is trying to show us is that Jesus is the God that has power over even the wind and the seas. It freaks the disciples out as he quiets and stills the water. And then he gets off the boat and he gets into the town where there's a demon-possessed man that everyone's terrified of. And he casts the demons out into the pigs and then sends the pigs into the, into the lake, which is one of my favorite uh, nighttime stories to tell my kids before they go to sleep. But it's a, so he, he has power over the wind and the waves and he has power over the demons. And then we get here to this story to show us that he even has power over sickness and death. And first we meet this man named Jairus. Jairus was a ruler of the synagogue. Um, this was the type of person that generally followed Jesus around murmuring in the background, trying to catch him in his act. They were the suspicious ones, the condemning ones. So here's Jairus, um, willing to be humiliated in front of the crowd, in front of his peers. We have to assume there are all sorts of his peers here with Jesus as the masses are, are, are walking. Willing to be humiliated. He's needy, he's desperate. And he comes to Jesus and he falls at his feet and he pleads with him to just make everything all right. And so they start heading towards his daughter. And this is when the plot twists. You know, what the story was about, it was about a clean and upright man with a name, Jairus, who loudly and publicly came, came to Jesus because his daughter of 12 years of age was sick, needing to be healed. And this woman became, this story became about an unclean woman without a name who quietly, secretly touches the garment of Jesus because she'd suffered a bleeding hemorrhage for 12 years and she needed to be healed. These are two very different but desperate people. This woman, in fact, was the epitome of being alone. Uh, because of Jewish law, and you can go read this on your own, uh, in, in Leviticus 15, we see that a bleeding woman cannot touch or be touched by anyone. She cannot enter into the temple. She cannot worship. She is unclean, she is unwanted, and she's unnamed. Luke and also Mark tells the story, intentionally don't give her a name. She's just the bleeding woman. Her pain had sent, took and taken center stage in her life. It was her identity. She's the bleeding woman, the dirty one that no one wants. She's a nobody. If anyone not only were to touch her, but if she were to touch anybody else, they would be made unclean. They'd have to go into this thing that we all know well. They'd have to go into quarantine. They'd have to go into quarantine through the evening and then enter out of quarantine into this long process of cleansing themselves before they can go back into their place of worship. This woman was all alone untouched, not for 12 hours, not for 12 days. This woman was untouched for 12 years, stranded to the side of the road, needy and desperate, wanting to be made whole. And from afar, she sees Jairus, the ruler of the place where she cannot enter. And walking beside him, a meek, impoverished, tender 
approachable yet powerful man named Jesus. Jairus and Jesus and this mass of people going somewhere really important. But that does not stop her. She's a desperate, desperate woman. And uh, we actually see in her desperation, her faith is highlighted. She moves towards him, which is my second point, the faith of, of this woman, the faith of, of, of this man. Um, so 120 miles uh, east of the Mariana Islands, I, I learned about this several years ago, and I've, 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 it's just um, it's a really cool, cool illustration. Um, 120 miles east of, this, of the Mariana Islands in the Pacific Ocean is a place called the Marianas Trench. And the Marianas Trench is now known as the deepest part of the ocean. This trench is 35,000 feet below sea level. So if you were to take Mount Everest and flip it on its, on its bottom and go down, you'd still have another mile till you reach the bottom of the Marianas Trench. Um, up until a few years ago, no scientists had ever been able to reach the bottom because the pressure, the, the water pressure is so intense, it's like a thousand times the pressure of sea level that if you send anything down there, it just gets uh, smashed, suffocated. But a few years ago, they created something, I don't quite know what, what it looks like, but they sent something down to the bottom. And it got there, and it survived, and it recorded, and they saw in the bottom of these, in this dark, despairing, freezing cold place, there were these, there were these tiny half-inch, more like this, half-inch long shrimp called Rimicaris hybersae. Can you say that word? Rimicaris hybersae. That's what these things are called, little half-inch big shrimp. And um, which I just think is crazy. Something is surviving down there. They don't have any eyes. I don't know why they need them. They don't have any bones. They're just a little shrimp, and they're sitting at the bottom. And I don't quite know how uh, science works, but uh, m- many students at TU do, just not me. I was in the business school. Uh, but there are these tectonic plates that shift and move and rub up against one another. And so what you see is you see these tiny little shrimp, the way that they survive is by sticking to the rock because the rock is moving and it's through the little cracks in the rock, it's bringing out heat. So the way in this dark, despairing, 35,000 feet below sea level place, you have these tiny Rimicaris hypersae and they survive by sticking to the rock. And that's what we see in the story. These people who are in the most despairing, dark place in their life, clinging, running, crawling to the rock. And that's faith. In your neediness, there's dozens of options, a whole whole industry inviting you, come turn to me, and I will give you life and comfort. But faith is turning to Jesus. In your desperation. That's what this woman does. She sees this man walking toward her, getting all the attention. Surely she's heard of him. Certainly he was the talk of the town at this point. And actually one of the coolest little um, Bible nuggets here, she must have known her Old Testament well. The last book of the Old Testament um, is the the, the prophetic book of Malachi. And in chapter 4, verse 2, it says this. 
the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. The son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. And so do you know what that word wings is in Greek? That word wings is the same word as corners or fringes of garments. So the, the, the Greek Old Testament, when they translated the Old Testament in Greek, that word that's translated for wings is also the word for uh, garment or the corner or fringe of a garment. And a rabbi would wear a garment and it would have wings. It would have actually four corners with tassels. And so this woman's connecting dots and she says, hey, here comes the son of righteousness. You know, this unclean, desperate, weak woman gets it more than anybody else. This outcast from society, this woman who hasn't stepped foot in the temple or synagogue for 12 years, she gets it. And so she reaches for his wings. She reaches for the corner of his garment. And instantly, immediately it says, power comes out and she's healed. And I love this. Jesus says, who touched me? Now, he doesn't want just like a transaction. Uh, he, could have, he could have sufficed for that, but he wanted to see her face to face. And she needed to see his face. And so in comes this frail, weak, unclean, all alone, desperate, no-name woman. A woman who was not even supposed to be speaking to a rabbi. And I imagine that she musters up a response to his question in her weak and wobbly voice. I did. I touched you. And what does he say? You know, the only place in all of the Gospels where he gives someone this name. He looks at her, he touches her on the head, and he says, daughter, daughter. He gives her a name, a royal name, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. In that moment, he's saying, I will provide for you like a father does a daughter. He anoints her with blessing. He anoints her with royalty. No longer are you the bleeding woman. No longer will your pain and isolation and suffering take center stage in your life. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be whole. Be restored. Now, I want to pause and um, maybe flesh this out a bit because I don't know about you, but I know a lot of sick people, uh, suffering people, addicted people, struggling people who've come to Jesus with their sickness, with faith, and they're still sick. I know a lot of people who want to be healed from their sin and their misery, and they still struggle and they still suffer. Takeaway from this passage. I think it would be heretical at worst and maybe just a giant misunderstanding at best for our takeaway from this passage to be, well, if you're sick or sinning, pray to Jesus maybe, um, have stronger faith, and you won't be sick anymore. You won't sin anymore. And uh, that would just be a, a, a really terrible translation. So how does our faith make us well today? 
Um, well, this, this word faith is actually, you know, it means a lot of things, and, and we could talk about faith in a variety of ways, but in Hebrews, it's actually explicitly defined. Faith is, is what? The assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not yet seen. And um, I, I like that translation. There are m- many good translations of, of that, but I actually like the King James Version. The King James describes uh, or defines that verse, uh, translates that verse as, as the substance of things not yet seen. The ESV is the assurance, um, or the, the NIV, the NASB is the realization. So I like that. It's the substance, the realization of things not yet seen. So I want to I play around with those definitions for a minute. If faith is the substance or the realization of, of what's not yet seen, of what's hoped for, what is certainly coming. So, so uh, how, how, do we, how do we understand this? Um, a, few, a few months ago, let's just say it's, it's February, um, and we get a 50-degree day in February, okay? What are you, I mean, at least what are your kids doing? Um, maybe what, what are you doing? You're putting on shorts. Uh, you're maybe even putting on sandals if you want to get crazy. Um, because you have the attire, and you know what's one day coming, summer. So you kind of want to like live it up right then. In February, we got like a halfway to summer sort of day, so we're going to wear our shorts and our sandals because we know it's coming. Um, let's just imagine now you live in like Alaska or Antarctica, and you get a 50-degree day, which I think is scientifically impossible, but let's just imagine, like, I don't think they have the attire. They're not going to think anything of it, like nothing. This is a total anomaly. Nothing's actually going to change. So, I'm, no, I'm just going to stay in what I have, okay? So let's go back to Oklahoma. We get a 50-degree day in February. We're putting on the gear. What are we doing in that moment? Well, we're certain that summer's around the corner, that it's coming. And so today, we just want to live in the reality, the substance of what is certainly about to come. It's faith. Um, I also, I, I love, uh, if you want to flip the holiday or the, the calendar, I love, I mean, what does is, what is, what is Starbucks uh, dips into this? Because what comes out on November 1st? I think it's November 1st. No, maybe October 1st. Maybe September 1st. They capitalize on this. It's the pumpkin spice latte. They're like, Hey, the fall is not yet here, but you want to you wanna act like it's fall? Come, come, drink our pumpkin spice latte, and you can pretend, you can live in the substance, the reality of what's coming. Fall is coming. You can live in it today because it's faith. So what's that mean for us? What's it mean that our faith living today in the realization, the substance of what's certainly coming, how, how does that make us whole? I mean, like, think about what we're doing right here. We're gathered, the gathered people of God, we're, we're, we're living in a substance of the gathered tribe, tongue, nations of God who are going to sit and worship him for all eternity with his people. I mean, what are we about to do in, in a little while? We're not only are we going to remember and proclaim the work of Christ that's been done, but we're also going to look forward to the wedding feast of the Lamb. We're going to sit together and put in the substance, in the real, live in the substance, the realization of, of what's certainly going to come. I and mean, what do we do when we pray? We're speaking, praying, voicing our heart to God because certainly one day there is a real living God that we will see face to face. So by faith, we're putting on, we're practicing, we're putting the clothes of prayer on, so to speak. And what do we do when we read God's word? Certainly we're going to hear him. 
physically, tangibly, audibly hear him. So today we come to his word where the realization, the substance of what we will one day certainly hear gets played out. This is living by faith. These are what we call the means of grace. Like how are the sick and the suffering and the sinners made well today? They're made well by faith. You know, when you feel beat down by life, we come, we, we live in the substance, the realization of what is one day certainly going to come. We pray because one day we're going to hear and we're going to see. We come, enjoy the fellowship because one day we're certainly going to, to enjoy the fellowship. We come and we, 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 we experience the grace of God by faith. And our circumstances may not change, but over time we do. Over time, this, this, these acts of faith make us well. And this leads me to our, our last point. So what is the hope that we are looking for? What is, what is it that is certainly coming? So we transition back to the story of Jairus in, in the daughter. And we pick up in verse 49. The, 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 the friend comes and says, hey, don't trouble the teacher anymore. Your daughter's dead. And Jesus, on hearing this, said, do not fear, only believe. And she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. And they were all weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed. I love that. Um, Jesus' closest disciples laughed. They said, that's ridiculous. She's dead. What are you talking about? There is no hope. What are you talking about? He took her by the hand and said, child, arise. She got up at once and they gave her something to eat. And they were amazed. They were amazed. I was listening to a podcast the other day, um, a podcast by Kate Bowler, who was given a, a three-year terminal sentence. Um, uh, she, has, she has cancer eating away at her body. And she's five years into that three years. And she has a podcast called Everything Happens. And she was interviewing this, this pastor who uh, has been a, a pastor for 40 years. And he retells the story about 20 years into their ministry, or into his ministry, where he said, to this day, it was the hardest thing I ever had to do. Um, a family in our congregation lost one of their young kids. And I had to go be the one that no one wants to do this, but I had to be the one that went up with a word of hope at this funeral service. And he says, I recall just moments before I walked out on stage, praying with every ounce of, of my being, God, don't make me go out there and lie for you again. Do you hear what he's saying? God, these people are desperate for something. They're desperate for anything. They're, they're desperate to hold on to some news of hope to get them through this darkness. Your promises, your hope, your son, and the resurrection of our bodies, that better be true. Don't make me go out there and lie. And the Bible teaches that it is true. The Bible teaches that the Christian hope is not that your sickness and sin and struggle and suffering will go away, the side of eternity, if you just muster up enough faith. It might. It might. You know, one of, two of the coolest moments um, in, in 
One, one I was uh, at working at a church, and the other I was just a witness to. Um, my friend Brent, Brent Corbin, his daughter, I, th- I think she was about two years old. Um, Jason might know the story. Maybe he's told you the story before. Um, I think she was about two years old, and she still wasn't able to walk. And it, it reached a point where she, I mean, they were obviously way past concern for her. And River Oaks had a, a service where uh, you could come forward and, and oil would be anointed on your head and, you, and, and they'd pray for healing. And so Brent and Sarah, they, they brought their daughter up and they anointed her head with oil. And the next day she walked for the first time. Um, I remember one of our close friends who worked at the, or who was a part of the church that I worked at, she uh, was her first pregnancy and she was 22 weeks and she was in the hospital, and they told her, the baby's coming today, and that's not good. Um, and the elders of the church show up at the hospital. Um, I, I was just a witness to this. And they anointed her head with oil, and the next day she was released, and she had the baby at 38 weeks. It can happen, but that is not our, our ultimate hope, because sometimes it doesn't happen that way. You know, I love, uh, Tim Keller points out, you know, the church prayed for John the Baptist to be released from prison and he got his head cut off. The church prayed that same prayer for Peter and two angels show up at the door and walk him out. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes it doesn't. But our ultimate hope is not in circumstances changing, though they might. The Christian hope is that one day, God will make all things new and we will be reunited body and soul. We will be raised from the dead and stand before this living God. And we will commune and enjoy the fellowship of one another and of of the lion and the lamb and we will work and we will worship and we will eat. I love that part of the story. You know, hey, get her something to eat immediately. It's just just the same thing that happened with him, right? Rises from the dead. I'm going to go eat with my disciples. And this points to our, our great feast. Well, we will, you know, it's not just a, a disembodied hope. It's a physical hope. We will be back on this earth. And we will be whole and we will be restored. Everything that had caused us grief and pain and sadness will be made new. And how do we know that's coming? Because this daughter really died. And she was really raised from the dead. Or Lazarus, he really died. And he was really raised from the dead. And both of those and many other stories of resurrection point to Jesus, who really died. The death of a criminal put to death by us. He really died. And he really was raised. And what does Peter say in, in, first, in first Peter? It says, He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but it was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. A seed that will not die through the living and the abiding word of God. I want to revisit this, the story of, of the Mozambique people. Um, a group of Christians in Mo, Mo, Mozambique in 2006, they'd worked a long process of taking 
fragmented pieces of AK-47s and taking bullets of, of AK-47s. And together they worked this redemptive, artistic, beautiful thing that you could put it on the screen. They made, they took the pain of their people and they made the tree of life. And that tree of life is sitting in the British Museum of, of Art today. And this, this tree of life represents for us the, the, the pain and the suffering and the sin that causes you great distress and worry and sadness and doubt. God is using it and renewing something. He's using that. It's not meaningless. He's creating something beautiful within you and through you and around you. And one day we will be at the very presence of this tree of life. God, God, God tells us that our, our trials, that we will have trials, but he has overcome the world. That our trials today are not meaningless. They're the very things that God is working through to create something beautiful. That is our hope. Um, let us pray. Um, God, we, we do, uh, I just pray for um, these small acts of faith today as we walked in to be um, fed by your word and by the fellowship of your people, to sing praises, that these small acts of faith would, would heal us, that they would make us whole, that we would uh, leave this place changed and renewed, that the things that get us down in life, that we'd see big glimmers of hope that we would believe that you are using our pain to create a beautiful, beautiful story that points and shines light in your glory. Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.